Welcome to the Master Slave Lifestyle Podcast. Here we'll interview real people living the real Master Slave lifestyle, all consensual and all in different ways. And in this episode... The importance of the power exchange, how central it is, uh, seemed to be stronger for slaves than for dominants or masters. Community may be more important for masters than it is for slaves. There are really four super categories here at Kink Identity, and they are sex, headspace, we can talk about what that means, community, and then power, power exchange. This is masterslavelifestyle.com. Hello, everyone. So for this episode, I'd like to welcome back to the podcast, Master Richard. Master Richard is the research director at Tashra, an alliance of people looking into the mental well-being of people who participate in kink. Master Richard has been doing research on the different facets of kink identity, and today we're going to be discussing how people who identify as master or slave see their identity. Hello, Master Richard. Hello. It's good to see you again. Can I ask you to introduce yourself to listeners who might not remember you from last time? Sure. Absolutely. So, um, as mentioned, I am the research director for TASHRA, which is the Alternative Sexualities Health Research Alliance. It is a community-based research organization. I started with a doctor and a sex therapist here in San Francisco. Uh, We've been working since 2012. Other parts of my life, I am a research psychologist, a developmental psychologist, and probably about 20 years ago, I switch from doing child development to sexual identity development primarily and working with adults. And a lot of my research has focused on kink and BDSM. And I have been part of the San Francisco leather community since 1990 and started my own journey on master-slave relationships probably about 1996, 1997, and I currently have a number of slaves and one pup who's very different from all my slaves. And the stuff I really want to talk about today is um, an ongoing project, which is a kink identity and sexuality study, or KISS, K-I-S-S project. And we're still continuing. This is going to be a fairly long-term project, but there have been a lot of interesting things that have fallen out. So we're going to talk about some of that today. Thank you. And for anyone who's really interested in all of the slaves and then the pup, there will be another episode where we talk about this later on during the year. So we'll have to wait, wait for that one. But today it's going to be about kink identity. So, sir, could you explain a bit more about what it is you've been researching? Yeah, I've always been interested in identity and how that changes over time and people's uh, journeys. And so a number of years ago, we started doing this project of trying to understand how people talk about how they understand and conceptualize their kink identity. So at that time, it was very exploratory. We decided to interview 72 people in depth Each interview was about an hour to an hour and a half. A couple of them went a little bit longer than that. And we asked all sorts of questions about, you know, when did they first become aware? How did they describe themselves in terms of kink? Asked about different 
values that are important to kink fetish BDSM subcultures. And then a lot about like high points and low points on their kink journey. And out of all of that, trying to figure out how do people talk about their kink selves. And from that, we actually created, uh, went through all that data looking for patterns, looking for similarities, and identified a number of different, what we can call dimensions, to their kink identity. You want to think of it sort of as like a kink personality. There are different dimensions of people's understandings of kink identity, of their own identity. So we've turned all of that into the sort of the second study, turned all of that into um, what I call the kink identity scale, which is an attempt to kind of be like a personality test for kink identity. Then we're finishing up testing it to see how it works with the idea that we can now use it, for example, to understand how people who identify differently within the kink community, how certain key or core dimensions of their kink identity, how they work and how they differ. So for an example, one of the things from the interviews and one of the things we ask on the survey or the scale is all about the relationship between kink and sex. So some people talked about kink as sort of an enhancement or uh, an aphrodisiac or some sort of like getting the engines revving for sex, right? So kink enhances sex or it, it sort of uh, adds spice to it. Other people talked about it differently. They talked about like, no, actually kink is sex. Uh, whether it involves genitals and orgasms or not, it is the same energy. It's the same effect. So there were a few people who were really talking about kink and sex as if they were the same thing. And then some people really talked about kink and sex as being completely different, completely separate, completely different energies. Some people talking about how they separated kink and sex. Uh, we explored why. And notice some group differences, like, for example, men, <laughs> men tend to blend kink and sex, right? Or for them, kink is sex, and very rarely do they separate it out. Whereas other people that we interviewed, some transgender people, some women, and we heard from them that sometimes they would separate it out. Interestingly, there were people who separated it because they want to maintain a monogamous relationship, but they wanted to experience BDSM in ways that they could not do with their partner. So they kind of made a very strong boundary between kink and sex. So this whole thing about kink and sex, that's an important aspect to one's kink identity. Like, how do you understand that? How do you manage it? What does it mean to you? And people really differed in these ways around that. Well, this is an important area in understanding what does it mean when I say I'm kinky. And people are going to have uh, different viewpoints and different ways of doing it. But we could see patterns. We could see that there were trends and patterns and how people did that. So that's just one example. We ended up actually proposing seven different dimensions out of our interviews. 
And then when we tested it, we actually found, actually, it's not seven, there's 13, but they all make sense, right? Wow. 13 dimensions. Uh, yes. So that's why, right? There's so much diversity in people's kink identities. And what does it mean? And, you know, we're looking at things which don't necessarily map onto an established label like slave, like master, but it allows us to go in and take a look. And so when we compare people who identify as masters versus people who identify as slaves, how do they show up? There's some interesting differences there. Cool. So this episode, which dimensions will we talk about? Would it be all 13 or will we do a smaller set? <laughs> well, um, I think actually we can probably just touch on all of them, but probably concentrate on other aspects of kink identity that are pretty relevant to master and slave. Cool. When we group them all together, though, we realize that there are really four super categories mm -hmm. for kink identity, and they are sex, headspace, we can talk about what that means, community, and then power, power exchange. So we tend to find those being the key big areas. Cool. We've got headspace, community, sex, and power. So shall we start with power and break that one down a bit? Okay. All right. So first off, people differ on how important power and eroticizing power and power differences and power exchange so some people are really, really into it. Some people are not into it really very much. Their kink is really about the sensual experience or the sensory experience of it or some other aspects, but not necessarily about power. But a lot of people are, and of course, not surprisingly, people into Master Slave. This is pretty central to their kink identities. What was interesting there is that in some ways, when we compare masters and slaves, people who identify that way, when we look at them, the importance of the power exchange, how central it is, uh, seemed to be stronger for slaves than for dominants or masters. Oh, interesting. Yes. And trying to make sense of that and trying to explore that more, but there is a sense in which it feels to me like being slave identified probably in many ways is such a, maybe a difficult journey, maybe um, something you really have to work at because of the way in which our society really rejects or is sort of really stigmatizes submission in some ways. Because I think slave identified people have to work at it harder and have less support when they do that journey they are finding you know in order for them to continue and persist and to try to realize this they have to make it more central in some ways to their sense of self or else they would just wander off or, or not do it so i think given the stigma given the social context for like community support and other things that's the way I'm making sense of why is it that slaves are more central, especially around power exchange, but really most aspects of their kink identity, 
is more central to their sense of self than it would be for other people. Does this link in with, let's say, the low points as well? So when I think about my experience as a slave, you know, I've had some pretty terrible experiences and I've always had what I've termed in my head a bit of a crisis of faith. Do I still want to do this or not? Yes. You know, later on, I've almost deliberately created that question, which creates doubt around my identity. But I'm kind of saying, well, is this something I still want to do? And then when I really go, yes, I'm still going to do it despite the pain. It sort of solidifies it more. Yes. Is this true of other people? Am I unique in that? No, I don't think you're unique in that. I think that is what we're hearing in a lot of the interviews and a lot of the other aspects. And it makes, I mean, psychologically, it makes a lot of sense that the harder you have to work for something, the more it becomes a higher value right, and priority. That's true. You know, if things are really, really easy, people don't invest all that much in it, or they certainly aren't very conscious of it. Having to face a lot of those low points and figure out how to grow from them or how to cope with them, I think does make it so that you're much more conscious. And then you're making a decision to really do that, be there, to invest in that part of you. And so I do think that's a fairly common story and dynamic. We're in the middle right now of analyzing the low points, because that's one of the things we asked in the original 72 interviews was, tell us a high point in your kink journey. Tell us a low point. And so we're looking at those high points and low points. And I have to say people were amazingly trusting and generous in telling us their low points. People told us some, you know, pretty hard things when it came to their low points. But we're noticing some patterns there too, even though we're still not quite finished analyzing it. Things like sometimes the low point would be around, in particular, perhaps around issues of the scene going too far or um, some consent issues happening in the scene, and that was a real low point for them. And sometimes there's a real struggle for people, especially submissives in, in a scene, to sometimes call a safe word or somehow to communicate because they're afraid of disappointing right, the dominant, or there's a lot of things that go into them sometimes the low point was not feeling like they had a voice in spite of the fact that they had negotiation and other things to prepare for the scene. So there are some really interesting dynamics there and some of those low points that we're digging at at the moment. Okay. That would be fascinating to hear more of once, once you get the information. I think it will help yeah. everyone. Is there anything else for the power dimension before we move on to another super dimension sir sure so one of those dimensions has to do with is power and power exchange something that only happens within a scene right it's sort of limited or it only happens like you know in a very set like weekend or something like that so is it very limited with very clear boundaries of when we're doing power exchange and when we're not versus those people who want it to be central to their relationships, want it to be central to their lives, 
outside of a particular kink scene or BDSM scene. So that's like one aspect. And, and what we find is, again, slaves tend to prefer that in a stronger way, I would say, that more pervasive fundamental power exchange than some of the dominants and some of the masters that we were talking to. But for the most part, most people, if power is pretty central to them, um, it's not necessarily really limited compared to other people. In terms of that the slaves prefer it more compared to the dominance as, let's say, a central part of the relationship, did you find any reasons why that was the case? Not quite yet. That's like the next question is like, what's going on there? And this will definitely lead us to some future studies. Trying to get at that sounds to me like it's probably an, another interview study because there's a lot of nuance to that. There's a lot of uh, complexity to it, which doesn't lend itself to you know, a survey or a bunch of questions on a questionnaire. But this finding is definitely setting us up to go, okay, so why? What's going on? Fascinating. I mean, thank you for sharing this. I would say there is something else about power, and that is uh, what we call a sort of uh, fluidity versus <laughs> unipolarity. I like using that word, unipolarity. Some people identify as submissives only. Some people identify as dominance only. So they're very, very clear, and they don't really change depending upon the situation or the relationship. And then there are people whose dom-sub role switches depending on the person, depending on the relationship, depending upon the scene. Sometimes a few people switch in the middle right, mm -hmm. of the scene when it comes to power and power exchange. So that's another really important and interesting aspect. We found that people who identify as masters and slaves tend to be very focused on one role and not necessarily very fluid or switchy. That's generally true, but of course, it's easy enough to find people who do switch there. But overall, as a group, compared to other people who don't identify as master and slave, you're more likely to find switchy stuff happening. Oh, interesting. So defining as master or slave, there's actually much less likelihood of switching occurring compared to other groups. That's what it seems to be, and that seemed to be suggested by these interviews. We're going to try to test that out on a larger group of people and asking these questions on the kink identity scale. And so we'll be able to test that. It might be, again, just because of the people we interviewed, but maybe it'll be true for a larger group, right? And so that'll be interesting. But yes, that is what we found, at least in that first study. So which dimension would you like to go to next, sir? Oh, king and sex, king and power. I'd say community. Community. I would say community is, it's an interesting dimension that people's sense of their kink self is sometimes wrapped up in being part of the leather community, the kink community, the master-slave community. And for some people, it's not related to community at all. So people really differ on how important community is. There is, I think, some indication that in some ways, community may be more important for masters than it is for slaves, in spite of the 
slaves might be more sort of variable on how important community is, but for masters, community seems to be pretty important overall. We're going to test that idea again to see whether or not that is really true. But some of the early results seem to suggest that community as a dimension of kink identity works a little differently between masters and slaves. So I'd like to find out exactly why or how. Interesting. Is there any data to say why the masters have more of a need for community compared to the slaves? No, I have some ideas. And that is, again, you know, I can always think of like, I know people who don't quite fit that picture. So again, when I think about that, one of the things I've noticed a lot in both my work and my personal life and being part of the community in San Francisco is that often dominance and masters have more difficulty connecting with each other. So they work at it more. Oh, interesting. So again, in that sense of, well, if you have to really work for something that becomes more important to you, it becomes more central to you, seems to be at play here. And yet it's funny because at the same time, I think it would be easy for people to say that the community celebrates and supports and holds up masters or dominance in a pretty clear way. And yet, I don't know that that's actually the felt experience of a lot of people that helps or that's happening. So part of me is thinking that it might be that, in fact, community is perhaps a bit more difficult for masters and dominance, and so therefore they really work at it. It could be that a lot of dominance and masters tend to, given their skill set, given their sort of mentality, you know, they like to organize things and run things. Maybe that's it, that they like making things happen and they like to sort of be right at the center of what's happening. And so they find that community is a great place to really express that and experience that. So it could be that, maybe a combination of both. So that's what I suspect. Slaves, in many ways, their focus is on the relationship, right? Their focus is on their dominant, their master. So community is kind of in the background. It's still important, you know, but that I think might be part of the what's going on there too. We're going to find out in the next couple of years. Actually, I hope starting next year. Nice. And what else comes out with a community? And this one, I'm still kind of like trying to understand and trying to figure out a way to honor and address. And that is some people actively reject community because part of their identity is they see themselves as outsiders. They mm -hmm. see themselves as rebels. They see themselves as, you know, in some ways, their identity is in opposition, right? So there is a, a small group, it seems to be. We'll find out how big it is. But there does seem to be that kind of rebel aspect. And I think that's a pattern that I have seen with dominance and masters in particular. Is So they're either like really involved in community or they're really outside community, whereas slaves are a little bit more you know, across the board. Some of them are really involved, some of them are not. But 
it's not polarizing the way it seems to be for masters. That's my sense, at least at this point. And then is there anything around, let's say, families and kind of more polyamorous connections? Uh, yes, that is part of the dimension of community that we were noticing. Along with that goes things like puppy packs, sort of uh, the packs or other animals. So there is the sense in which we create these alternative structures. We thought, okay, that's closer to community than it is to some of these other aspects. So yes, some people did talk about how important leather families are as a way of expressing their identity, as a way of reinforcing and supporting their identity. So leather families definitely did show up. And I have a personal interest in trying to understand leather families and how they work. Um, it's an interesting alternative family structure. In particular, you know, the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer people are pretty good at creating these alternative families, these, uh, you know, chosen family structures. But the same thing is happening in the leather kink community. And I think that that's fascinating. So we do have some people whose community aspect of their identity is because they are in leather families or creating leather families. So I definitely hope to explore that more going forward. It's interesting that it pops up when we do ask about community. You mentioned, let's say, leather families and packs as two separate kind of things. So what is the difference between, let's say, a pack and a leather family? <laughs> um, I don't know that anybody's actually sat down to try to figure that out, really. I would imagine that. Well, first off, packs are sort of central to, right, and interwoven with that kind of um, sort of animal role play, animal identity, the animal headspace, right? So the puppy identity. And leather families are not specific to that. I mean, the leather family might have a member who is identified as the family dog, right, or the family puppy, but that's not central to the leather family the way it is to a pack you have to be a dog to be a part of the back so there's the way in which leather families have more different kinds of roles and identities in them but both have often both have a kind of power structure who's the head of the family who's the alpha of the pack or the alphas if they figure out who's well the alpha the beta so I think that the power aspect is kind of the same, although, yeah, how strong that is, how clear that is defined, or how important that is to the functioning of the family or the pack, I think differs depending upon the particular family, the particular pack. But generally, that's something they have in common, right? It's a group of people coming together freely but entering into a number of different power exchange sort of dynamics. I would say, I don't know about this. This is one of the things that I hope somebody <laughs> investigates more carefully. The boundaries of some leather families are pretty permeable, 
I mean, you get a large group and some people are part of that, you know, just like a regular bio family. Some people are part of it, and but you only see them like once every five years or you live on the other side of the country or something like that. I don't know if that works the same way with packs. I think it probably does, but I'm not sure. There's a lot about pups and packs that seems to thrive, especially on close connection, close contact, a lot of interaction, more than perhaps leather families would. I'm not sure about that, but that's possible. Be worth finding out. Cool. Thank you for that, sir. So which dimension would you like to look at next? So we've talked about kink and sex and kink and power and kink and community. I suppose headspace would be the next one. Very nice. So the headspace one, we put a number of different things together and then found out, guess what? People really differ on these things. They don't really go together. But conceptually, I like to think of it as kind of headspace. So there are three things in there. One is people really differ on how important getting into an endorphin state or an ecstatic state, sort of an altered consciousness, how important that is in terms of their kink and their kink identity. So some people, they're motivated by that. That's pretty central to their sense of a kink self, looking for an endorphin high. And then another area that's pretty distinct is the spirituality aspect. You know, the spiritual aspects of kink or of master slave is pretty important to them. And for others, it's not important at all. But that's pretty distinct from like, I'm looking for an endorphin high or going into subspace and things like that. Then we have the role, and that's more like being a pup, being a little, age play, animal play, different headspaces, and how important those are. So when we talk about the spirituality aspect, what does this actually mean for people when we're using that word? Well, that's a, that's a huge... That's a huge question. In the interview and in our survey, we didn't really define it. We wanted people to define it for themselves. In some cases, it popped up in the discussion about kink and sex because some people said that both doing kink, BDSM, and doing sex are both expressions of spirituality and heart. And that's why kink and sex are blended or why they are the same thing. So the sex part is an interesting aspect of the spirituality for some people. And that could be also related to the ecstatic qualities of having an orgasm or something like that. So clearly some people think of that spirituality as a really embodied, altered state kind of experience. For other people, I think that there's more of a understanding their power exchange relationship, their master-slave relationship, the way in which it makes sense, the way in which it's sort of held in a bigger picture is often captured by language about spirituality. So I think in some ways, that's not necessarily about the sex part, that's about the power part. How does power work and the understanding of power and how power is talked about is you can often find in spiritual writings, in religious reflections. So those are a couple of ways in which the spirituality tends to pop up and show itself. 
And then, of course, there really is the ritual aspect, the ritual, the protocol, the ways in which you act in a way that really signifies something bigger or really embodies, for example, really embodies the power exchange. So I think rituals and protocols, people will often talk about those, not just as power exchange, but as spirituality for them. And as I said, then there are some people who don't think of their kink or have their kink identity connected in that way. But there is a small group in both the interview study and I think in our kink identity scale study, we did see that fewer people really centralize spirituality, but they're there, right? And it's pretty important to their kink identity. Fascinating. And then with, let's say, the sub and top space and the mind space. Was there any links around how people saw this if they're in a full-time relationship? Because, of course, you can't keep uh, an ecstatic experience 24-7. So was there anything that kind of came out from that about how these people saw it? I'd have to go back and look more carefully. Again, it would be centered around the rituals and protocols, kind of like what is the structure that enables you to really express you know, this is what it means to be master. This is what it means to be slave. So I think that the rituals and protocols and how formal those are probably coincides with how central spirituality might be to your kink identity. I think that's a fascinating area to investigate. We are, in fact, in Tashra just starting a small study. We call it our authority transfer study, where we're trying to understand the experience here, the motivations and the experience of being in a dominant headspace, in a submissive headspace, rather than really to try to get into, so what is that experience? So we're investigating this area. We're going to be doing some what's called phenomenological interviews, really trying to understand people's felt experience of what is that sub-headspace, right? the uh, top or dominant headspace. Our goal is to do that, to look for patterns, but primarily to understand what the experience is like to be doing master-slave, dom-sub. Because we feel like in our work, what we notice is that therapists and counselors and mental health providers find power exchange to be the hardest thing to understand why do people doing it? What do they get out of it? What is that experience? I think they have a very biased viewpoint of that. Whereas if you talk to therapists and counselors and mental health providers about something like SM, you know, pain or bondage or something like that, they don't seem to have much issue or problem with that. But power exchange, they do. And I think that that One of the reasons why we want to do this study and really look at this headspace stuff, especially in GAMSA relationships that have been going on, I imagine we will probably hear things which are relevant to your question. Like, okay, because we are going to be asking people who've been doing master-slave relationships for more than two years. So people who've really had a lot of experience in a relationship of doing this. 
And phenomenological studies often don't involve a lot of people, but they go deep into depth. So we're right now planning on just interviewing about 12 people, but the interviews are going to be two or three hours of really trying to get at what's going on. So I'm really looking forward to that. We just started recruiting, trying to reach out to people and ask them to be part of this study. So maybe by next year, I can also tell you a little bit about that. That would be amazing. Is there anything else in the headspace that's worth talking about? I don't think so. I think that pretty much covers it. The spirituality aspect, the sort of um, altered states of consciousness, and then the role consciousness, which is really a pop headspace or a dominant or submissive headspace. Although it's interesting because for, in particular, subspace, a submissive headspace, a subspace, I mean, we often talk about it and it's submissive, but it's also an altered state of consciousness. So I'm really looking forward to finding out more about subspace. I've always wondered with a subspace, if you could record the brain patterns, does the brain rate change or something? Yes, actually. I mean, the, our current, those of us sort of um, investigating this area, there is a phenomenon called temporal hypofrontality, I think it's called. Essentially, what's been noted in a lot of brain studies is that experiences like kind of similar to a subspace, the front of the brain, the sort of um, executive functions and everything else like that gets quieter. And the rest of the brain really lights up. So we think that that's probably what's going on in subspace, the way that we understand it in our community. Because then often when the prefrontal cortex is a little quieter and the rest of the brain is more active, you can get certain kinds of effects like a sense of, you know, floating or a sense of like lost time or a sense of other things which can seems to be part of subspace so that currently right now we are thinking about hypofrontality as a description of you know a, more of a theory but a description of what's going on in the brain in the middle of these sort of types of altered states of consciousness it's fascinating stuff fascinating and then finally and not least the sex dimension <laughs> yes as we said for some people, kink and sex are completely separate. I would say that I didn't really notice a difference between masters and slaves in this particular thing. Most people in doing master-slave were more probably more likely to say kink is sex or kink and sex are blended rather than kink and sex are separate. That sort of expressing power through sex is pretty important. But at the same time, the thing about fetish and kink BDSM is that, and this is why some people can say kink is sex. It is sex or erotic, even if it doesn't involve genitals or involves an orgasm, right? So I think that that's probably a fairly common experience for masters and slaves to have that. That sex is one way of expressing it, but it's not the only way. And therefore, you know, a perfectly satisfying relationship or a satisfying scene doesn't necessarily have to involve genitals and orgasms. So the question is whether or not masters and slaves are more likely to have, say, kink is sex than other 
kink or fetish identities. So it'll be interesting to see. I have noticed in my own very on statistical kind of talking with people that there is a sort of journey that at a certain point, if you want to do it as a lifestyle, it does start to change that it's not about the orgasms, but it can be about other things, which is then even can be more sexual. Yes, I find that to be the case too. So um, that's a snapshot of the kink identity and sexuality project. Um, as I said, we're finishing up testing this, trying to measure these different dimensions. And then once we've done with that, we are going to do a much larger study that's going to look at kink journeys and try to understand how journeys might differ for people who have a different kink identity approach to things like sex or community or headspace. That's next. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Um, the last time we spoke, you were doing the kink health study. Mm-hmm. Is that still going? Are you still looking for people? Yes, absolutely. We are still recruiting. I think we have about 900 people or so enrolled in the study. It's a longitudinal study, so we're going to follow people over time. But I suspect that we'll probably close recruitment come the end of May. And it is international, so people can do it from wherever they are. We are certainly really hoping to get more European involvement in the study at this point. So we've identified that as a next sort of goal in terms of our recruitment for the study, as well as uh, rural people and uh, people of color to be part of the study. So that's what we're currently doing. Uh, We're starting to look at some preliminary numbers. You know, that's a very big study. You know, we have several different surveys that they have to fill out, not just one. And by the time everybody completes all the surveys, there's like over 500 questions about your kink and your health. So there's quite a lot of information we're gathering to try to understand the intersections, the interactions between kink and health. So I'm very excited about that project. Yes, we're still recruiting. We're still asking people to enroll in the study. Where can they go to if someone would like to enroll? They can find out more information at kinkhealth.org. Kink Health. No capitals, no spaces, no periods, no dots. Just kinkhealth.org. And they can find out more information there. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for this episode and all of the information. And um, what we'll also do is for people that want to look at this a bit more, there will be a link to massaslavelifestyle.com where I'll kind of summarize some of this in a text form and a picture that uh, Master Richard has uh, given me. So you can have a look in more in detail as well as linking to any of the other places that is useful too. Sir, thank you so much for this. I really appreciate it and fascinating subject. I really enjoyed sharing about it. So thank you for your questions. My pleasure. 
If you'd like to be interviewed by me or know someone who would, you can get in touch with me at the email contact at masterslavelifestyle.com. You can now support the podcast, website and Masterslave community through Patreon membership and receive benefits such as early access to the podcast, exclusive video workshops and more, along with my thanks for supporting me. There is now a free download to help you take the next steps in the Master Slave lifestyle, suitable for both beginners and those who want a full-time relationship. Check out the show notes for more information on both. And if you're interested in finding out more on the 24-7 Total Power Exchange lifestyle, go to the website at masterslavelifestyle.com for more information. Thank you all for listening.